0: Good morning, good afternoon or good evening listeners and welcome to the latest installment of MBM's m a Snack and Chat podcast. I'm Brian Shaw, corporate partner in MBM's London office and I'm joined as always by my colleague Caroline Urban. Hi Caroline.
1: Hi Brian. Hi everyone.
0: hope you had a, had a very pleasant weekend.
1: Yes, it was very pleasant. How about yours? Good, good.
0: Enjoyed the sunshine while it lasts. It's a... It's a It's a nice time to be alive. Shops are open, pubs are still open. um, It's a good time.
1: Yeah, make the most of it whilst it lasts.
0: As a a reminder for our listeners, uh, or for those who are tuning in for the first time, uh, what one can expect on each episode: we will catch up with former clients and other specialists in the M and A field who can share their insights and provide our listeners with hints and tips on the M and A process. The idea is that it's a short, fifteen to twenty-minute podcast that's fun and informative, that you can listen to on the go or while you're sipping your morning tea, or munching on your afternoon snack. Speaking of which, Caroline, what's your snack of the day?
1: I'm munching on a piece of leftover Victoria sponge cake from the weekend. What about you, Brian?
0: Funny you should ask that. I was on a bit of a health kick last time. This time I'm going to live a little, uh, as they say, YOLO. So I'm diving into what's known as a pavlova. Have you heard of such a thing?
1: Of course I have. We're now going to contest Mm. about where it comes from
0: you should say so each country claims it as their own some countries russia poland new zealand and australia they all claim it as theirs and being uh you know true blue aussie i'm going to claim it as one of our own so i'm having an australian pavlova today
1: not sure everyone would agree with you anyway enough about the snacks on with the show we are joined today by nick wallace partner and head of deal advisory at gerald edelman brian as you've worked with nick in the past maybe you'd like to give the listeners a bit of more of an introduction to Nick and his expertise.
0: So as you mentioned, uh, Nick is head of deal advisory at at Gerald Edelman. Nick works with clients who are looking to sell their businesses, buy or invest in businesses or raise equity or debt funding. Nick has helped sell and buy a number of businesses across a number of sectors, including leisure, business services, technology, and pharmaceuticals. Nick is the go-to man to extract that extra value for clients and true to form, I recently introduced Nick to a client in the tech sector where he was able to help the client sell his business for almost double the original offer from the buyer. Nick, it's a pleasure to have you on the show.
2: Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Caroline. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, as it's tradition and as we've already dived into the luscious snacks that we're snacking on, what are you snacking on today, Nick?
2: Well, like Brian last week, I've decided to go healthy today. I'm on a bit of a health kick myself. I'm eating a pear today.
1: Gosh, you put us to shame. Well, yes. let's, let's move on swiftly. Nick, will you tell us about the Nick Wallace journey? Where did it all begin? And how did you end up being a partner at Gerald Edelman?
2: I studied accounting and finance at university in Nottingham. I actually started my career in investment banking. So I started at Lehman Brothers back in the summer of 2008. Which was, you know, in interesting time. timing. <laughs> I was around when uh, when when things didn't go so well. At that stage, I kind of it was a bit of an uncertain environment in in the market, especially in investment banking. Uh, I always planned to kind of go, end up in investment banking, but decided at the time the safer option was going to take down the accounting route, qualify as an accountant, mm. and end up back in investment banking down the line. So I started on the PwC grad scheme, started off doing audit. So I was auditing them mix of kind of large FTSE 100 clients and also some smaller owner-managed businesses, which was a really good opportunity. I started off in audit, as I said, and moved into their transaction team. After seven years, while I'd had a great time there, I wanted to get a bit more opportunity and experience working with entrepreneurs. I wanted the opportunity to, to work more with these guys and on some smaller deals as well. So I moved over to a boutique corporate finance firm. And uh, then kind of had the opportunity to move across to Gerald Edelman and head up the, the M&A or the deal advisory team at Gerald Edelman. And it was an opportunity that was, was too good to turn down, which was nearly two years ago. That's, uh, that's how I ended up at, uh, at Gerald Edelman. How big is the team? So as, as a firm, we're about 150, 160 people. In our deal advisory wider team, we've now got, I think, about 13 or 14 people.
0: For our listeners, you talk about your role as in deal advisory or an M&A advisor, can you briefly explain exactly what that is and, and when is the optimal time for you to become involved?
2: We help clients who are looking to sell their business, who are looking to buy a business, or if they're looking to raise funds for growth. So if anyone is in that category, we can help. And typically involves sort of three just quite distinct phases. First phase is planning, which is the most important phase in our, in our view. Um, we make sure that every single client we work with is properly planned and prepared an investor or buyer ready. That's from two perspectives. One is from a due diligence perspective. We're not gonna do due diligence, but we're gonna prepare for due diligence especially in the COVID world and a Brexit world, every single investment decision from a buyer or an investor uh, is scrutinized more and more. And therefore, they want to make sure they're making the right decision. And therefore, the, the amount of due diligence people are doing is becoming more and more intense. And therefore, we want to make sure our client is ready for a due diligence exercise. That can be from a tax perspective, from a finance perspective, from a legal perspective, uh, from an intellectual property perspective, from a property perspective, you know, all these sorts of areas. But also, importantly, we want to make sure the business is prepared strategically what I mean by that, I mean that when when a buyer or an investor comes along, we want to make sure the business is ready. The business has kind of had their, their growth plan properly thought through, that they, they've got credibility in their growth plan in terms of the growth area. So as an example, you know, if you were a business based in the UK, and you'd always been in the UK for the last 15 years, and then you you told an investor or a buyer, oh, our growth is going to come from growing in Australia, South Africa, and the US. If you haven't got any experience outside of the UK people aren't necessarily going to believe that that's a mm. possibility. And therefore, what we do is we'll say, look, actually, why don't we spend six months with you working on a strategy to make sure we, the growth that you're forecasting is credible so that you've got some credibility in those specific areas. So when a buyer comes along, they're more likely to buy the business based on the future, future value rather than on today's value. The key thing is to make sure that the business is more saleable, but also increase the value of the business as well. Obviously, as part of our role, we need to find an investor or a buyer. Some of the time our clients already have, you know, an example that Brian mentioned before, the client already had an offer on the table from someone and we sort of came on board to help drive up the value of that offer. A lot of the time our clients don't necessarily have a buyer or an investor lined up. So one of our roles is to do that. And we've got an extensive list of contacts, we've got good research systems, and we've got networks internationally as well that help do that. And then the second phase is is effectively going out and approaching those buyers or, or investors. Who's interested in in investing or buying in the business? Um, If we're working for a seller or an investee company, that then ends up with facilitating indicative offers. Our our role is then to negotiate that deal. No one really ever comes back with their best offer first, so we we end up trying to push the price up as much as possible. Clearly, the more people that we speak to throughout the process, the more competitive tension there is. And again, in the example Brian gave before, where the client you know was expecting sort of somewhere around. 10 to 12 million and ended up selling it for close to forty. One of the reasons for that was competitive tension in the process and and people really wanted to bid against each other and drive the price up. The the second phase sort of ends up typically with some kind of term sheet, heads of terms, indicative proposal from from a buyer or an investor. And the third phase is it becomes more of a project management and advisory role. We do deals like this day in, day out, and therefore we work with our clients and make sure they know um, exactly what we're doing, using using our experience to know what's right, what's wrong, what they should be looking out for. You know, if we're working for a seller, pushing the buyer and their advisors to to move through the process quickly, working alongside people like Brian and and, and the law firms to make sure that the legal documents reflect the commercially agreed terms. Ideally, we get involved at least three months, if not six or 12 months in advance of that marketing phase, because we want to make sure the business is properly prepared. If you want to maximize saleability and value, our advice is to to come at least three months, probably in advance. We can really sit down work with you, get that planning process um, in place, so that when we do approach the market, we significantly increases the chances of getting a deal away and getting a deal away at a valuation that's appropriate.
1: That, that sounds uh, so interesting. I couldn't agree more that the, the earlier you get involved in this process, it's, it's often similar for, for lawyers. But um, we have the same sort of experience where you know, a transaction comes to us and they say, we want to sell tomorrow. Is that doable? And of course, it never is. But, you know, we try our best.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, And in reality, actually, when we're doing our planning phase, well, I wouldn't, I'm not a legal, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an expert in that. So what we tend to do is is work with the likes of Brian and Caroline to um, make sure that, you know, from a legal perspective, the business is, is ready as well. So we can pick out the key area or key risk areas. But. We're not experts in intellectual property. We're not experts in employment law. You know, what we try and do is kind of identify what those key areas of risk are and work with the experts to make sure that the business is, you know, is fixing all those skeletons in the closet in advance of going to market. The last thing you want to do is have an issue that comes up in due diligence. I always use the analogy, if you're going to go and buy a house and then you notice that, you know, the tap doesn't work or there's a bit of carpet that's up in the corner, even though they're minor things, your immediate response is, well, what else is wrong here? And it's the same for a buyer who's, who's kind of buying a business. If the, even if you've got some small issues come up, naturally it provides caution. So we want to make sure there's a clean bill of health and we want to, we want to go through that process as early as possible.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Covid has obviously played a severe impact on the M&A activity in 2020. First question, because I, I think it's so interesting that you started your career at Lehman Brothers and I appreciate that was quite early on, but when Covid picked up, are you having a familiar feeling to, to the Lehman Brothers days? Like things are going to get bad or there's a bad feeling in the market?
2: It's a difficult question because I was so, I was so young in my career at that stage. When, when COVID struck and, and lockdown in particular in the UK struck pretty much every MA deal that we were working on bar one was put on hold immediately. Some were immediately called off. We had a couple of clients in leisure where we had deals agreed that were due to complete within weeks. And unfortunately they were sort of just not even called off. They were sort of mm. cand- candled together, which was a shame. We were fortunate enough to have one deal that carried through and um, albeit the, the terms were slightly changed and there was a bit of caution from, from the investor. Regarding 2008 it was a similar immediate reaction of yeah, let's just wait and see what's going to happen here. There was a, it was a bit of a, a bit of a shell shock in, in terms of the, the update and the news. I think two thousand eight was different in that it directly impacted the banking sector a lot more, whereas COVID sort of impacted everybody and everything. Mm. So it wasn't mm. just we're going to put deals on hold for financial reasons; it was for health reasons and all other reasons as well. So that was a slight difference. What we saw in March was, as I say, everything got put on hold. And then throughout sort of April and May, things were were quiet. We started to see sort of towards the end of May and June, a lot more conversations with people, so people starting to re-engage in terms of thinking about selling or thinking about raising capital or thinking about buying. Um, But there was still so much uncertainty in the market at that time that we didn't really see things pick up again until probably about... A month or six weeks ago so sort of early august time it was a sort of bit of a significant uptick in activity pretty much straight away we were we were expecting and thinking that would probably come sort of post-summer, so September, October time, or, or maybe kind of post-furlough scheme ending, so November, December time, but people realised that you can work from home, the world does go on, people were getting a bit frustrated that nothing had really happened, and it was sort of that pent up demand that sort of came back again in one go. There's still a long way to go to get back to sort of pre-COVID levels, and, and not necessarily levels in terms of deals, but levels in terms of valuations, levels in terms of, of certainty of transaction and confidence in the market. And we're hopeful that uh, that will continue over the next few few months.
1: I can imagine that there are particular sectors that are more active than other sectors.
2: Yeah, a bit like you, we, we, we don't focus on a particular sector. Leisure is one of those sectors that's sort of ripe for consolidation right now. Those that were poorly managed or had were significantly or highly leveraged with a lot of debt in their business have probably struggled to make it through this time. Those that had a strong balance sheet and a stable business model have sort of survived. And actually it creates opportunities for acquisition in terms of acquiring businesses that potentially have struggled a little bit more. The other two sectors that come to mind, one is healthcare. Clearly, healthcare has come to you know the front of everybody's mind in the last six months. And the other one is is the technology space where businesses that have subscription models and we call it software as a service so SaaS mm. models, businesses who can demonstrate they haven't been negatively impacted by COVID and actually have grown through the period, actually valuations might even might even go up.
0: If, if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm in one of these businesses that, that's been resilient, that's that's got good growth potential, but on the same token, you know I'm looking to sell within the next twelve months. What would your advice be? Should I start preparing now? Or should I kind of hold off for another six months? Or what would you say?
2: I would always say it's never too early to prepare. What we often see is business owners who have come towards a retirement age, going right, now I'm gonna sell. But unfortunately, because they've sort of run a lifestyle business over the last few years, the business has sort of been fairly flat, fairly steady, very nice, nice living out of it. But that's not as attractive for a buyer as a business that's been growing year on year with new, exciting innovation and concepts. So what we say is that how do we help you make sure that you can present your business to a buyer that's one that is you know a growth business, is exciting for a buyer, and therefore can maximise that value down the line. So going back to your question, Brian, yes, yeah. if you're looking to sell in the next 12 months, you know my advice is start talking to, to, to an advisor now. Start thinking about preparing from a due diligence perspective, but also from a strategic perspective now what we often see is people get a knock on the door. So people get approached directly themselves. In an ideal world, if you're approached directly and you're ready, you've got all your numbers in order, you've got all your skeletons in the closet fixed, you've got everything sorted, you can then open up open up your business to that to that business rather than scrambling around and saying, well, I knew I had some accounts over here and I, I can show you this, but it takes you 10, two weeks to put it together. You know, it, it kind of puts an investor off. Whereas if you've got everything clean and ready to go, even if you're not thinking of selling for three years, if someone approaches you, it's a much better place to be never too early to to get prepared
1: let's get a bit technical now completion accounts or lockbox what are they what is the current trend and what advice do you give to your clients i guess that's probably different if they're a buyer or a seller
2: just to kind of take a step back people always talk about when we talk about valuation of a business they tend to talk about enterprise value so that so the value that someone's placing it so a multiple of profits as as an example Mm -hmm. Um, in reality it's actually very rare that a seller will receive that value for their business in terms of cash Uh, and the reason is that when you sell a business it's typically sold what we call debt-free and cash-free what do I mean by debt-free cash-free a bit like if you're selling a house if you sell a house for a million pounds but you've got a 700,000 pound mortgage the equity value of your house is only Mm 300,000 in the same way if you sell a business if you sell a business for 10 million but you've got a million pound loan outstanding a buyer Is going to have to take on that loan, and therefore you've taken that loan out. That's how you've chosen to finance your business, and therefore the buyer will want that either deducted from the proceeds. So actually, it's ten million deducted the debt, which is which is a million in this case. Therefore, the proceeds are nine. So the buyer then has that extra million to go and repay the debt, or the debt is repaid as part of the transaction. So you actually receive ten million, but you use one million of that to repay the debt. You end up in the same position. That's what we mean by debt free. In the same way, businesses tend to be cash-free, which means that any cash in the bank tends to get added to the purchase price because under the current ownership structure before a deal, the, the sellers um, or the owners of the business can do whatever they like with that cash. If they want to pay themselves dividend, if they want to you know, pay a bonus or whatever, they can do what they like with that cash. So that tends to be the reason why we have ca- cash-free and, and debt-free sale. How do we know what that cash balance is and what that debt balance is at completion? One is completion accounts and one is a lockbox methodology. So completion accounts basically means that you do a balance sheet as at the completion date and then make an adjustment afterwards for that cash and debt balance and, and the working capital bit I mentioned before.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So the problem with completion accounts is you don't have certainty on what that value is in terms of the debt-free, cash-free piece, on the, on the way we treat the balance sheet, to call it generically, um, until probably weeks or sometimes even months after the transaction. So that's the issue. Um, so the other way around that is a locked box, which is where we fix a balance sheet date um, and fix a balance sheet at that date um, to provide certainty of an adjustment. So as an example, if we were completing a transaction um, today, on you, know, which is the 15th of September when we're recording this, um, what we might do is we might fix in the, the balance sheet date as of the 31st of August, which is the last management accounts date and say, right, that's the balance sheet we're going to base our debt free and cash free and any other balance sheet adjustments based on that. Now, the good thing about that is it provides certainty um, to the transaction because you know exactly because you've got a fixed balance sheet date. The, the risk with that is that there's movement in the business between the, the date of that date. So in terms of you know if it's 31st of August and the date that we actually end up completing, there are movement in, in the business and things happen in that, in that period of time. So how do you, you there's a potential loss of value for, for the sellers in that time. So ultimately, if they're done right, completion accounts and lockbox should end up with the same number. If they're done correctly and negotiated properly, in reality, what we're seeing more of was seeing more deals with completion accounts, particularly for smaller deals, for larger transactions where the business has more rigorous reporting on a monthly basis, more reliable management accounts. We tend to see more, more lockbox transactions mm-hmm. because you can rely on the monthly monthly accounts a bit more than, than a smaller business that might not necessarily have that rigorous monthly account process. From our perspective, as long as you know, the, the completion accounts or the lockbox is negotiated in a fair way. We don't really have a preference as such. When we're working for a buyer, again, we probably want certainty of deal. We want a certainty of transaction. Therefore, we'd probably push for a lockbox. For a seller, we, we actually don't really mind. I think it depends on, say, the situation of a seller. What we tend to see more is completion accounts in, in the smaller deals. Nick,
0: thank, thank you very much for your, for your, for your time. time. But, but before we, we end, we just have enough time to do our rapid fire round. round. You'll, You'll have, have 60 seconds, seconds to, to answer, answer as many, many questions, questions as you can. can. Just, Just say, say the, the first thing, thing that comes to mind.
1: So, Nick, in one word or
2: phrase... On your mark!
1: Get set! What was your first job?
2: Uh, accounting assistant.
0: Favourite holiday destination. More leaves.
1: If you were having a dinner party and could invite three guests, alive, dead or fictional, who would you invite and why?
2: I would probably invite Ledley King, my footballing hero as a Tottenham fan. I would invite um, Mickey Flanagan, because I think he's hilarious. And I would probably invite Boris Johnson as well. What are you currently reading? I'm actually currently reading a book about negotiation, which is very boring. Um, but it's one of the skills that's very important in our job. So um, I'm really about negotiation <laughs> skills. Admirable. <laughs> mm.
1: If Richard Branson sat next to you on a flight, what would be your first question, other than are you Richard Branson?
2: And ask him if I could if, if I could borrow some money. <laughs> Seems to be the uh, common the theme. theme. Uh, Favourite yeah. movie? Oh, Shawshank Redemption. Good one. Oh, yeah. Classic.
1: And finally, if you could travel back in time to meet your 10-year-old self, what advice would you give
2: him? 10-year-old is quite young. Um. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got was um, actually when I was at Lehman's, so a bit older than 10 but it was make sure you understand how everything you do adds value, why you're doing what you're doing and how it adds value otherwise you'll never learn. So I think that was a, that was a pretty good piece of advice. so I'd probably I probably give myself that advice um, when I was 10. I
1: will remember that
2: Very good. Nick, thank you for your time
0: and participating in MBM's M a snack and chat podcast.
2: No, thank you guys. It was a pleasure.
1: That's it for today. Thank you for joining us in our informative conversation with Nick Wallace, Head of Deal Advisory at Gerald Edelman. Join us next time when Brian and I will be joined by another special guest and we will chat and snack all things M&A. Goodbye.
0: Bye. Bye.